Can you hear my computer like struggling to live? No, can you hear my neighbor six doors down weed whacking and or using a machete? Is that what the kids call it these days? No, I can't hear him. Fabulous because I can and it's driving me up a wall. Wait, did you hear her? Act one, Al Andalus, the year seven. Uh oh, seven eleven. Yes, I know the year. Seven eleven. It is. Yeah, that was the year that. Uh, that was the year that the Umayyad conquest of Spain invaded Iberia. Well, and they were there until 1452. I hate that I remember this, but I'll also <laughs> lack I do. Um, well, my name is Augusta. Oh, my name is Eva. And this is the Phenomena Podcast. And this week, we're going to be talking about medieval necromancy. Hell yeah, we are. When we left you last, <laughs> we were talking oh. about <laughs> the Bible. Um, right? That was like the end of last episode. So that was like... Yeah, that was the end of last episode. I think the Witch of Endor was the end of last episode. Um, so, and we were talking about necromancy as like divination and like the summoning or rising, causing to rise of like shades or shadows of spirits in classical antiquity. So, as we move through this series in a historical progression, um, some of those terminology are going to change. Um, so today when we talk about another different period of time, <laughs> um, like late medieval Renaissance, late medieval into Renaissance, um, you'll hear more of the word like sorcerer and um, like the clerical sorcerers and things like that. Um, not all of these magics were necromancy, but necromancy was written about so in the, in the context of these things. So our sources have to do with our sources have to do with sorcery in general. Um, so you'll start to hear that word more and you'll also start to hear the word demons more, which we didn't really hear mm -hmm. when we were talking about the direct scriptural necromancy, um, the witch of Endor story. But as time goes on, that starts to become the word shade will pretty much drop during this time period um, and be substituted with spirits and more commonly demons, which are not exactly the same thing, but there is a common belief that demons are tortured souls that have been punished in hell um, for so long that they have essentially lost their humanity. So they are kind of spirits of the dead, but they also aren't because they don't necessarily represent living people the way that – or sorry, don't necessarily represent specific persons or personalities the way that Shades and Shadows did. And there, I would say, like, an important differentiation is that they're aligned with the devil. So, yes. like, demons have lost their status as – uh, like divine humans on earth, even ones who were right. christened or whatever, whatever right. situation you may be in. I think we're also going to be using the word magic a little bit more and talking about magic as a concept. 
wow, that's so funny that you say that because I was <laughs> actually going to read a really interesting um, quote from um, this essay uh, called From Sorcery to Witchcraft, Clerical Conceptions of Magic in the Later Middle Ages. That's so funny. Um, By a man whose name is, I already forgot, I'll put it in post. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Michael D. Bailey. Richard Linklater. <laughs> yeah, Richard Linklater <laughs> wrote this book. <laughs> this is the conclusion to his essay from Sorcery to Witchcraft. Magic may at times appear to be a perennial aspect of pre-modern cultures, but magic too has its history, its story of change over time. And insofar as magic in all its forms was such a pervasive aspect of pre-modern culture, even seemingly slight or subtle changes in ideas of how magic worked or who could work magic produced effects of wide importance. Changing notions of how magic operated and changing concerns about what magical operations might or must entail drove the transformation of sorcery into witchcraft. The effects of that change marked Europe for centuries to come. Mm, delicious so, quote. Can I, is a delicious can I read a follow-up? Um, yes. Obviously, we don't use the term pre-modern on this show. This is, a, this is a, um, I think, a complimentary set of quotation. This is from Magic in the Middle Ages by Richard K. Keffer. I believe is how you pronounce his name. So this is um, this is a book that's like an incredible sort of foundational survey of magic across the Middle Ages, especially into the late Middle Ages, because that's when we have more sources from. The most fundamental question for present purposes is how to define magic. If a person rubs bat's blood into his eyes, is it magic or a kind of primitive medical science? How can we define the border between magic and science? Even if we want to say that there are instances that lie near or on the border, it seems we must be able to define the border itself. So too, we must be able to indicate how magic relates in principle to religion, even if we want to acknowledge many cases where they resemble each other closely. Love what them. I think is interesting about these two quotes is that they both get at a question that, like, especially our anthropological background, I think, encourages us to investigate. Anthropological backgrounds. I know we took many of the same classes. It's not the same. <laughs> yeah, we basically have the same anthropological background. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Um, but, like, what does magic do and what does magic mean in a social context, right? Like, what... Yeah. And in this case, necromancy. So necromancy right. is different from a lot of the, like, sort of medieval magics that are more commonplace and more household because necromancy right. has these specific associations with both divination and the dead. Yes. Um, but still there, it raises these questions about religion. It raises these questions about science. It raises these questions about function and about use. And one thing that right. was also highlighted in this book that I want to just preface with is that when working with medieval sources, it is difficult to access truth value and specifically, it's difficult to access tone. So, okay, yeah, you can read these books of magic, and in some of them, you can read them as like true, like the way you might read a cookbook, and some you might read assuming that it's satire, mm -hmm. and some you might meet, might read assuming it's fiction. Like these are various mm -hmm. interpretations that various authors make. But I think for the purposes of this podcast, at least the way that I've been thinking about it, I take these sources to be indicative of cultural attitudes and trends yes. regardless of whether the events in them actually Are occurred factual. the way they're described absolutely i totally agree 
that thank you for um thank you for reminding our fucking plebe audience about <laughs> how to analyze text anthropologically. No, it, it is helpful because oh, I mean it's a great little way to talk about how we understand the things we're gonna buy. So let's get started. So, <laughs> what? What are you laughing at? Nothing. Sorry, there was a really funny meme that just popped up on my GCal reminders. Oh, okay. No. Oh, I read this chapter. <laughs> so, do you know who Gerbert of Aurillac is? Mm-mm. I actually don't know how to pronounce his name. That's my best guess at the French pronunciation. Gerbert of Aurillac. I actually know Gerber of Warlocks. He went to my middle school. Okay, cool. So do you know who Pope Sylvester II is? Hint, he was only Pope for like four days. No, he was Pope for four years. So Pope uh, Sylvester II, which is what I'm going to call him, even though he really was not Pope for most of his life, but because his name is very hard for me to pronounce. Pope Sylvester II was sort of a controversial little Pope. He was like a little naughty little pope. He was a naughty little pope. Anyway, he was a nasty little pope. This a nasty little pope. So he was, the things that people liked him for was he was very erudite, as they say. Uh, he was very, like, learned. Um, and he was very invested uh, in in teaching the disciples that he had. Um um, but he was also controversial and they sometimes referred to him, sometimes referred to him as like, uh, Pope Faustus, um, okay. because of his, what they perceived to be his Faustian relationship with demonic entities, Ooh. um, because he studied in El Andalus, which, uh, it is Muslim controlled Spain and Portugal at the time. Um, so this was in like the nine hundreds. Um, and there he learned uh, what they call Arab science and Arab <laughs> science at the time was like, yeah, that's a really confusing word. <laughs> such a funny term. Such a funny term. Right. So Arab science is like a combination. <laughs> you just go it's like female behavior. Yeah. <laughs> That's female. <laughs> That's female behavior. Yeah, That's so Arab science. <laughs> Arab science. Obviously, not a term anyone would use now. But in 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 medieval writings, Arab science. What that means is basically a combination of like mathematics, astronomy, astrology, and augury divination mm-hmm. and necromancy. Mm-hmm. So. You know what the quadrivium is? Mm-hmm. Wait, no. Tell me. Okay, so the quadrivium is the original liberal arts curriculum. <laughs> For those of us who attended liberal arts colleges, you might be like, oh, there was only four classes I had to take? Anyway, the quadrivium, um, yeah, it's arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. So that was sort of like, that was the quadrivium. Then Arab science, which was its own liberal arts curriculum, was i already forgot the list that i said earlier but it was the list that i said earlier um Mm -hmm. advanced mathematics astronomy astrology and augury divination 
And this pope studied Arab science, and so they believed him. They suspected him of necromancy. Yes. Is so this, this pope, yeah. So this pope studied Arab sciences, and he brought a lot of the like quote unquote Arab science curriculum into the quadrivium. Like he wanted to add necromancy mm. as like the fifth thing in the quadrivium Mm -hmm. and he was really learned and obviously like even though arab sciences is like a super dumb term like it's it's clear that there were many things about science and math to be learned from um like the establishment (laughs) from the intellectual establishment in el andalus like they you know much everything pretty much everything right (laughs) they really had a handle on it they really had a handle on it that was like a massive center of, of science and maths um that's right i say maths now but um so anyway but especially um celestial divination so celestial divination was like the big thing that he wanted to bring from arab science in um and then necromancy was sort of part of it because that was that was the more controversial thing that he studied because Mm -hmm. celestial divination at least was related to astronomy, which was already Mm -hmm. part of the quadrivium. But he was saying like, no, we should summon quote, ghostly forms from hell, unquote, (laughs) um, (laughs) in order to, um, learn from them. Um, and that's also where like the augury of flight patterns comes from. Well, and an interesting thing to note at this point is what medieval universities and colleges were. Yes. So this is actually important when we think about the history of occult, occultism, magic, mm-hmm. and mysticism generally, and its relationship to the Middle Ages mm-hmm. and medieval times. Because the medieval universities um, were a form of higher education, but unlike now, there was no such thing as like a secular college, really. They studied things that were considered right. what we would consider now to be secular, but the higher forms of learning, the higher disciplines were like theology, law, and medicine. Those three things were both linked and studied right. all together. And, and so and all of the quadrivium was linked to a like a divine um right. goal or or cosmology. Right. So if you were if you were learned, if you were learned, you hear that? Mm-hmm. Um, another crashing behind me. Yeah, I heard it. <laughs> so if you were learned, like if you were learned, you... Did you hear that? <laughs> God damn it! God damn it, bro. Okay, go on. <laughs> if you were like learned, if you were learned in... Sorry, that, that time was an accident. Uh-huh. So if no, you were sorry. learned, like if you were learned... Why are you pausing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go full you said you had time today, ass, so but. here we are. If you were learned, if you were learned, if you were somebody for whom education had been something that was attainable to you, you probably right. had training in like either monastic or like religious practice because yes. the universities were kind of modeled after monasteries. Totally. And in fact, the reason that universities in the West are structured and shaped the way that they are is because they grew out of uh, like Christian cathedral and monastic schools. They have like a deep historical relationship. And so all of these forms of learning were linked. And so if you were somebody who had any schooling, you could have access to these forms of necromantic learning. If that was something that was taught at your university or college, which Mm -hmm. is part of what's interesting about who practiced necromancy in the middle ages. 
Totally. And it's going to be a huge part of how the sorcery to witchcraft transition happens because I will give you mm-hmm. zero guesses who gets in trouble for <laughs> witchcraft and who doesn't. <laughs> are, you, are you thinking women or Jews? I'm thinking just anyone who's not a member of these colleges, even though it's oh, okay. the same practices that are like, you know what I mean? So it's right. like you can go to these colleges, learn things like celestial. De- well, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Um, but yeah, so that that is when necromancy in the eyes of the church, even though he was controversial, so like obviously not unilaterally believed, that was when necromancy kind of started to be like, oh, well, maybe that's not like, maybe that is within the purview of the church. Like the church has been doing things like exorcisms, but like maybe actually reaching out and summoning demons could also be a part of ecclesi- like ecclesiastical practice. In that context, could you mm-hmm. talk to us about like court magicians and the, cleric- the clerical class who mm-hmm. were working in necromancy during the, during, <laughs> at medieval times? Absolutely. So if you go to a medieval times, you'll see some guys in funny hats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so this is from a section of that book that I was reading. Um, who were the necromancers? Last one I fucking brought. Let's fucking go! <laughs> Let's go! Plato! <laughs> the best part of it is that those effects don't show up in the recording. So as far as anyone can tell, you're just getting what? really bad. <laughs> It's so funny. I'm sorry. I really do promise that's the last one. I'm going to delete it from the... I'm deleting them from the bar. Okay, they're deleted. They're deleted. Go on. (laughs) Who were the necromancers? Both in legend and before the law, it was clerics above all others who stood accused of necromancy. To speak of the necromancers as clerics, however, is to speak with inevitable imprecision, since the term cleric could have many meanings. This was true of the Latin clericus and equally of the English translation cleric and clerk. More broadly, the term could refer to anyone, even a boy still in adolescence, who had been tonsured as a mark of pious intent to be ordained. A bit more narrowly, it meant a person who'd been ordained at least to lower orders, someone who'd been ordained, for example, as a doorkeeper or lector or as an acolyte. These offices had originally been connected with specific tasks, but later in medieval Europe, they were merely steps that one took up the ladder towards priesthood. Steps that were available even for those who did not intend to climb all the way to the top of that ladder. One of the minor orders to which a cleric would be ordained was that of an exorcist. And in the ordination ceremony, he would recite a book of exorcism as a symbol of his theoretical function. So here we have this broad understanding of what it might mean to be a cleric, but connected Mm -hmm. to what we were just talking about, the medieval universities and colleges... These were people who received a small amount of learning and like were initiated into these like sort of rites. Yes, they were and inside. Presumably were given, right, exactly. They were inside these orders and they were given enough education that they would be able to read at least some of these books of Latin or whatever they may be. Some of them are like a hodgepodge combination of Old English, Latin, Greek. Like mm-hmm. it really varies from necromantic text to like magic text. But these people were in some way connected to the church or the church body. And we talk about like medieval Europe. I'm talking Italy. I'm talking France. I'm even talking Germany, Germany, like all these places. So it is a widespread time when Europe is like 
it's not homogenous by any means. Like, obviously, like, you're, Mm -hmm. but the... Right, we're having a religious consolidation. Yeah. Um, Additional groups that might be considered monks. Monks could be part of the clerical underworld. Court magicians, as you spoke about, which Mm -hmm. I'll let you talk about more in depth because I don't have a ton of research on that. Um, But here, this is an interesting little, our first little real tidbit into what medieval necromancy was like. One monk at Florence, named John of Valambrosa, was keenly interested in books during his early years in the monastery and spent day and night absorbed in them. Unfortunately, he developed an attachment to the wrong kind of book, learned the art of necromancy, and began to practice in secret. Eventually, the other monks learned of his preoccupation. He denied it at first, but eventually was forced to admit his guilt. Several years in a dungeon left him broken in body and barely able to walk about, yet penitent and given to solitude as a spiritual discipline. So there we don't have good sources on what exactly his necromantic practice was. (laughs) Right, exactly. But we do have a record of his imprisonment for it, right? So like this gives us multiple things. One, it lets us know that monks were practicing this. Two, it lets us know that this was something that was uh, like people persecuted for. But it also lets us know this was like a real going concern. This was not just a myth legend. This was a thing that people were really believed was happening and that people were punished for. It was a huge problem so so right before it becomes witch hunts so in the period you're describing and then in the 15th the 16th century um there was a big problem in italy with friars and monks and cetera um practicing uh sorry the 15th century the vatican dispatched an inquisitor the inquisitor of mantua um, who was he was like another friar from um, from Italy, and so they dispatched him to Bologna, which is where the concentration of necromancy was happening. And they spoke mm-hmm. to all the friars. They did like what constitutes what constitutes <laughs> <laughs> the Italian Still police in investigation of of the late 1400s, and they determined that. Uh, there was a woman responsible named Chimitri, I believe is how you pronounce it. That's C-I-M-I-T-R-I. So Chimitri was just like a local woman. Obviously, she couldn't be a friar. Um, and she was jailed for basically having corrupted the friarship of Bologna into participating in necromancy in a way that wasn't okay with the church, which is interesting because mm. the church does at this time have involvement in communication with spirits but they felt that this woman who was not learned in their ways and was not in you know she was not in how what what do you call that like she wasn't an initiate she was an initiate right she was not an initiate of um these practices the proper way they felt that she was corrupting the practices that were legitimate and were okay and were ordained by god um into a demon worship or something that's affiliated with satan so they locked her up um and she was like that's fine because demons are gonna come and they're gonna take me away somewhere i can be safe so she was like 100 percent committed to it this wasn't just i mean obviously many times it was but this wasn't just like find a woman kill her it was like she was like yep that was me (laughs) so so uh (laughs) then she was not rest chimitri was not rescued by any demon as far as we can tell um and they burned her alive so that was one of the first burnings of what we would now call like a witch burning but she was not a witch she was a necromancer um and so that was 1498 and that sort of 
shows. It wasn't the very first, but it was so widely publicized and so like it wasn't a secret operation. Like they were like, yep, this is what we're doing. And that shows us like a pretty significant turn from jailing and releasing. Um, right, Niccolo of Verona? Is that who you're talking about? My dude's name was John of Vallambrosa. <laughs> Never mind, different dude. Um, there's another guy, Niccolo of Verona <laughs> was like another necromancer who was jailed and released. Um, but anyway, um, that shows a pretty significant turn from, oh, there's a guy in our order who's doing this. Let's jail him jailing at the time is i mean it still is like horribly inhumane like it was not they weren't just like locking Mm -hmm. him in his room was a horrible horrible experience and then released him he returned to the order and continued to be a part of it right then we have this turn into okay this is someone who's outside the order it's a woman it's like a peasant like a local peasant and she has corrupted the people who are initiates in the organization so contact with demons is becoming more and more illicit and more and more Mm -hmm. punishable in harsher and harsher ways, right? That investigator himself actually burned another woman for illicit commerce with the devil uh, in 1509. And then he just kept going. So Marta of Budrio, who's like a kind of famous witch um, in Bologna, that was him. Like all of these, there's a lot of women that he put to death in the turn of the um, 15th to 16th centuries. That's interesting. I think that part of what we're seeing in that when we think about the social life of these myths and stories, and I mean, not, you know, myths, but these texts that live on, Mm -hmm. when we think about that, it's like, what is happening that that would be the case? One is there's been this consolidation of religious power and punishment as the uh, Inquisition and church inquisitions continue yes. to grow in strength. And yes. it's like a tool of like linked to the state as a tool of punishment. Yes, absolutely. It's no longer internal punishment and within their organization. It's capital punishment of the utmost kind on behalf of the state. Yes. And, and you see that in the Inquisition across, uh, across various forms yes. of punishment, not only with necromancy. I think additionally, what you have is you're having, uh, as you move through the Middle Ages, especially towards the late Middle Ages, you're having a much wider mobilization of literacy. Yes. When we keep repeating that people were learned or learned, it doesn't just mean that they had gone to college. It means that they could read. If you couldn't read necromantic books, you couldn't practice necromancy. And as there was this proliferation of colleges, a proliferation of institutions of learning, as priests were trained and sent out back to wherever they may have come from, their various parishes and dioceses, they would have been teaching and tutoring more people who wouldn't previously not have had access to learned arts. Right. And those people were given, I mean, this is at least what one of the articles I read was positing as their theory. Those people were given just enough knowledge to really hurt themselves. Right. <laughs> they were given just enough understanding of the literature to do things that were far beyond their control morally or spiritually. Yeah. What were you going to say? No, that's that's like perfect. That's totally true. Yeah. Like these – yeah. So let's keep doing sorcery into witchcraft. I'd love to. So in addition to Catholics and the Inquisition um, putting people to death for practices of necromancy, the second thing that really launched – or they really pushed the transition of necromancy into witchcraft in terms of public perception was Protestant Reformation because the 
Reformation, one of the things that they sought to do, or really the thing they sought to do, they were really like trying to stamp out like superstitions and what they called like false religion, right? So they were, that was their whole thing. Like they are going to, you know, really enforce God's sovereignty um, and totally eliminate these other practices that were sort of like in contempt of God. One of the things that happened is they really pushed the definitions of words that already existed. So there was already like a treatise in uh, 14th century France um, that was released by like the Paris College of something that was, hold on, I have it. I don't need to call it the Paris College of something. I actually have it. The University of Paris released a condemnation of magic in the 14th century. Um, And it was 28 articles of explicit statements about false assertions that witches or magicians make about how magic actually can be okay with God. So that had been released Mm. already, but it never really said witch in it. We talked about ritual magic. Reformation really like kind of took this and ran, I mean, like a like hundred years later, that's when necromancers really became witches. I'm trying to like express like, it's not like propaganda, but like, you know what I mean? Where it's like they, they, they implemented, what do you call that? Like they weaponized definition. They, there's like a name for it in like the study of propaganda where you like essentially create a definition that didn't exist before that makes something that like criminalizes something. Sure. They're like redefining Yeah, yeah. The Reformation really like they pushed out new definitions of many of these terms that included things that were already seen by people as heretical. So it was like ritual magic in which you contact demons was already pretty heretical. And then they were like, yeah, people who do magic that isn't sanctioned by God, such as speaking with demons, are witches, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, oh, that's right. You know what I mean? Like they they sort of consolidated all of these practices into something that they could call witchcraft and started burning people at the stake for it. I mean, that I, I feel like a lot of people know that that hist- part of the history. And other things. Mm-hmm. They burned people at the stake, but there were all kinds of like witch trials. It wasn't yes. just that you would be killed for being a witch. It was that there were all kinds of various magical punishments that you were put through to see if you were in fact a witch so like in germany they were really into ice trials which is where you would be like frozen basically instead of burned mm-hmm. and i think in italy they would make you actually walk across burning hot poles and if you came away with your feet unburned you were protected by demons like that kind of thing there were like various yes. trials that people were put through yes yes and those were meant to your point, as a form of testing this consolidation of magic. So like if you have spirits, if you have demons protecting you as a witch, it's proof of your evil. Yes. That Thank you, you for don't giving... die of these terrible punishments. Yes. Right. Okay. Thank you for giving that as the example, because that that really shows what I was sort of struggling to say. Like it it we often joke about like the witchcraft trials now by being like, oh, like they whatever you tie something to your legs sink you to the bottom of the lake if you drown you were a person and if you float you were a witch and it's like wait so then the person if they're innocent dies like that's so strange right monty python ha 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 but like that really the the ludicrousness of that joke now shows just very basically how effective this consolidation propaganda was where it was like 
if one thing, then a totally unrelated, kind of like unrelated other thing, like you said, where it's like, if you're able to survive this, then that means not that you necessarily have some magical ability that actually is honoring of God. It must mean that it's demonic in nature because they were asserting that basically contemporary magic could only be two things. It could be spectacle, which in its own way is like a false idolatry, or it could be demons because the era of miracles is like, no, that was biblical. Like there's no such thing as like miracles anymore. Um, they're in Calvinist thought. So, so there's some disagreement there. Um, and that's, I mean, part of why as Hannah taught me, it's more difficult for people to become saints now because a lot of people see, don't see don't believe that miracles are possible anymore. And they believe that like there was an era in which miracles happened and now there is not. Can I give some examples of please do necromancy? So what was the, what was the name of the inquisitor who you were talking about? The inquisitor of Mantua, Cagnazzo. Mm, So there's a Dominican inquisitor named Nicholas Americus, Nicholas Americus, who made this report called directory for inquisitors. He reported in that, that was his, you know, that was what they were all given. Mm -hmm. And he, he did his report about, how many necromancers he'd come into contact with. Dominican, like, of the Dominican order, not, like, from Dominican Republic, <laughs> for the record. Um, and he said he'd confiscated books, such as The Table of Solomon and The Treasury of Necromancy from magicians. And after reading the books, he burned them in public. And here are some of the confessions that necromancers had made to him and some of the things contained in those books that they were punishing people for for necromancy. It wasn't just talking to spirits like we were talking about in the Greek and Roman, like in antiquity times. Mm -hmm. Here are some of the forms of forbidden magic that were considered part and parcel of necromancy. Baptizing images, fumigating the head of a dead person, abjuring one demon by the name of a higher demon, inscribing characters and signs, invoking unfamiliar names, which is a hilarious one, mixing the names of demons with those of angels and saints to form perversions of prayer, fumigating with incense or aloes or other aromatics, burning the bodies of animals and birds, casting salt into fire, and others. Mm -hmm. Some of those are like very straightforward, like necromancers would genuflect and make prostrations in the demon's honor, they promise them obedience and devote themselves, sing and chant. Right. Those are the things that are supposedly happening while they're like fumigating and burning the bodies. It's not just the act of burning the bodies or right. fumigating, but but that's how they add the act of burning the bodies into the mix of being demonic. And that's how you can reverse engineer if you've got someone who you need to punish. You're like, well, I saw you burning a body and chanting, and you're like, well, the body's burned, but I wasn't chanting, and it's like, well, but I, see, you know what I mean, like, right, right. And you've created a you've created a situation for yourself. Um, another thing I want to say really quick about magics that are often attributed to um demonic practice divination is definitely the number one i mean that's why we're talking about this right like divination is most commonly ascribed to being something that is demonic or otherwise inappropriate or whatever you know what i mean (laughs) um but it's interesting that abjuration was also mentioned in the one that you just said so people who are not huge nerds might not know that abjuration (laughs) tends to be abjuration is a school of magic that is protective um, and dismissive or banishing of evils or dangerous forces. So the fact that abjuration is included now in the magics that are not appropriate um, in in or whatever, like the condemned magics is 
very representative of this big shift away from Mm -hmm. like court magicians who would commonly be practicing abjuration. So that court magician is kind of exactly what it sounds like, like a court jester. It's a magician who works for the king, right? And abjuration was a major school of magic for court magicians, battlefield magicians, or even in many contexts, cleansing magic. So things like an Mm -hmm. exorcism would be Mm -hmm. from a, from a, from a, magical perspective, abjuration magics. And that treatise from the University of Paris explicitly discusses that abjuration, when it is using demonic forces, is not okay, basically. Um, Let me see if I can find the specific article um, where it says that. Okay, so the first article... I'll just start with that one and then I'll get to the two that are more relevant. First article of the determination made by the Faculty of Theology at Paris in the year of our Lord 1398 regarding certain newly arisen superstitions. Mm -hmm. Um, So the whole thing is in the format of superstition. That is not true. Superstition. That is not true. So the first article is this. That to seek intimacy, friendship, and help from demons by means of magical arts, harmful magical acts, also called maleficia, and forbidden invocations is not idolatry. This is an error. The demon is judged to be an undaunted and implacable, implacable, implacable adversary of God and man. He is incapable of ever receiving any truly divine honor or dominion by participation or by suitability like other rational creatures that have not been condemned. So that uh, per what you said earlier. Nor is God adored in these demons in a sign instituted at his pleasure, such as images and shrines. So then the the fifth and sixth ones are the basis of then the banning of abjuration magic that uses demons. So any abjuration magic in the eye of the church. Mm-hmm. The fifth, that it is allowed to use magical arts or other kinds of superstition prohibited by God and the church for any good moral purpose. This is an error. According to the apostle, evil cannot be done that good may result from it. The sixth, mm. that it is allowed and even to be permitted to repel malefithia by other malefithia. This is an error. We love good writing. So sorry, I went on a big tangent about abjuration magic. I just think that is like a specific case where you can see how abjuration magic used to be like pretty chill and okay. And then it was like, nope. Now, by the time we get to the piece that you just read, abjuration mm-hmm. is never okay because it, it it implies that that involves demonic presence. Always. Totally. Totally. It's interesting because it kind of brings us to the question of what people were actually using necromancy for. Right. Like, what were they doing that the church really needed them so badly to stop? Right? Like, I understand how theologically abjuration becomes a problem, but it seems like... <laughs> it seems like people might need it and need to use right. it. So, like, the one of the books that I was reading, they said that one of the main uses of necromancy was to like work on others. So like it would be like to inflame passions, to inflame love, to cause physical harm, to cause discomfort, to keep people from sleeping. So like you'd basically be binding a demon to your will and having them hurt other people. But then another one would be like to create illusions. Like that was considered necromancy at a certain period of time, as you're saying. Right. That's the- Why were you creating illusions? Why were you creating illusions? And again, illusion is a school of magic also. Um, Illusory magic. It's kind of like the charlatan thing. Like now they're like, Mm -hmm. they're like, no, it's automatically a crime. It can't possibly be real. It has to be demons. Like it's not, 
It couldn't right. be sourced from anything other than God or demons. And since this person right. is not godly to us, it's demons. Right. So where that leaves us before our next episode is Portugal. Why Portugal, Eva? We haven't talked about Portugal this whole time. Portugal... <laughs> By the end of this, by the end of this is back in control of their own land and they are now vastly in control of the seas and trade in the seas. Mm -hmm. And in the mid 1500s, they have reached West Africa and they have begun capturing and enslaving West African people. Mm. So in 1619, when a British ship called the White Lion captures a Portuguese ship called the Sao Bautista. There are 20 West African captives below deck on the Sao Bautista, and the White Lion brings them to Jamestown, Virginia. So that's how we have our, that's our very first touch of Voden becoming relevant. Those 20 particular individuals, I have no knowledge of what their spiritual beliefs were. But that is the beginning of how massive the impact of slavery becomes in America and on American necromancy. Right. Because you have this Portuguese tradition in which they have been very influenced by all these various forces that we've been talking about. And now they're coming into contact with this different tradition that we talked about in the last episode. Yes. And the meeting of those two traditions and the power structures inherent in those relationships is going to lead to a lot of interesting modern necromantic beliefs absolutely so yeah so we'll leave it there it's it's the 17th century up in massachusetts they're burning witches in england they're burning witches in italy they're burning witches in france they're burning witches in germany they're freezing witches in scandinavia they're freezing (laughs) witches to death um and in Virginia, and soon it will come to Massachusetts too, slavery is spreading and the subculture of African spiritual religions is spreading as well, despite the best efforts of the chattel slavers. So the next episode, we'll talk about what's happening in the Americas in the 18th and 19th centuries, and we'll talk about the Haitian Revolution and how that kicked off the contemporary contemporary understandings of necromancy and maybe even a little bit about voodoo we'll see we had necromancers and shades or oracles and shades then we had witches and mm-hmm. demons and now we'll have um necromancers again and zombies thank you guys for listening thank you guys for coming i think this is this is one of the arcs that's the most interesting to me personally and i feel like i have a little bit of background in it so I really appreciate you guys letting us get really in the weeds on this uh, nerdy history. No, it's super fun. It's super interesting. And I highly recommend um, that you read some of these old treatises from witch trials. That's not, I mean, it's, I, if we had hours and hours of time, I would literally just read you these documents of these witch trials. They're very fascinating. Um, thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, so my closing thing, mom wanted me to point out. So she texted me. I'll just read them to you. I'll just read them. Here's an update for the program notes. Now I have taken the battery out of the phone because I can't get it to shut off. I can't manage it. Me, what? No, stop doing that. Just turn the fucking volume off. Mom, the landline. Me, Jesus Christ. Mom, I don't know how. In the office. Ha ha. Me, there's literally a volume button. Her, you note my incompetence and it's gotten worse. Me, every time you do that, it resets the settings. 
Mom says, so put it in the program notes that it's a robot that hates me and it's arbitrary. Next time, I will try to kill it by dropping in a glass of water. But so far, with no battery, it's quite quiet. So that's an update from my mom from the previous episodes. Necromantic practice from your mom. <laughs> yeah, when we recorded that episode in her office, I didn't think she was going to listen to it. So I put that thing in her. I was like, why can't mom figure out how to use the fucking phone? And I guess she did listen to it. And so that's why she sent me all those. She's like, put it in the 